two, three, go. Hello, and welcome to International Security Off the Page. On today's episode, we are talking about the tension between material interests and ideals in American foreign policymaking, and more generally, the inconsistencies of Western democracy promotion. I'm Morgan Kaplan, the executive editor of International Security, and we will be speaking with Dr. Armand Gregorian, the author of the recent IS article, Selective Wilsonianism, Material Interests in the West's Support for Democracy. And a little later, we'll go off the page with Dr. Sarah Sewell, a non-resident senior fellow here at the Belfer Center and the former Undersecretary of State for Civilian Security, Democracy, and Human Rights. Belfercenter.org slash off the page is where you can find past episodes as well as supplemental reading materials. It is also where you can subscribe to Off the Page on your favorite podcast platform. Armand Gregorian is an associate professor in the International Relations Department at Lehigh University. Joining us now, we have Dr. Armand Gregorian, who's written a fantastic article for international security called Selective Wilsonianism, Material Interests in the West's Support for Democracy. Armand, welcome to the show. Thank you, Morgan. So Armand, tell us a little bit about what is Selective Wilsonianism? Selective Wilsonianism is the selective application of Wilsonian idealism to certain foreign policies. And I argue that sometimes these ideas and the Wilsonian ideology is applied only in cases where there are also parallel material and strategic or geopolitical interests. When these interests and Wilsonian ideals pull in the same direction, the United States acts as a Wilsonian state and in in fact, uh, something similar can be said about European states as well, Western European states. When these interests diverge or when material interests and strategic interests diverge from Wilsonian ideals, then Wilsonian ideals lose. And so what exactly are these Wilsonian ideals in practice? Well, Wilsonian ideals, as defined by Woodrow Wilson himself, I mean, Wilsonianism as an ideology had three pillars. One was the spread of democracy, and the other was uh, support for human rights, and the third one was support for free commerce. And all three combine into the Wilsonian ideology. And a lot of people argue, have argued, many historians and political scientists, that the United States has been uh, a state whose foreign policy has been based on these Wilsonian ideology since the beginning of the 20th century, or at least since the presidency of Woodrow Wilson. And so how does this argument challenge the conventional wisdom that's out there about how the United States in the West behaves internationally with regards to democracy promotion. The conventional wisdom, both among policymakers and among many academics, is that commitment to democracy and commitment to Wilsonian ideals is an important driver of U.S. foreign policy as well as the foreign policies of major European democracies. Now, in fact, there are some like Tony Smith who have argued, I mean, in fact, Tony Smith opens his book with that statement that the support for democracy, or he quotes Woodrow Wilson's phrase, making the world 
would say for democracy has been the highest political aim or highest political priority for the U.S. foreign policy throughout the 20th century. Now, if it was just the liberals who were making this argument or liberal ideationalists who were making that argument, that would be a problem enough or that would be enough for challenging it. But what makes this even more interesting is that there is a long-standing realist tradition of criticizing a lot of failed policies as driven by liberal delusions, to borrow a phrase from John Mearsheimer. And there was, in fact, a lot of criticism of the Ukraine policy as a policy driven by liberal delusions. Now, even though these arguments are usually criticisms of policies that seem to be you know, in line with liberalism, I think there are major concessions to the liberal argument in that realists who traditionally have been skeptical of any arguments or any theories that explain foreign policy behavior by commitment to ideas. In fact, they have had a long tradition of criticizing certain policies as driven by ideas, even if they have been critical of them. So I think, in fact, in my case, that has been a more important incentive for writing this paper than the liberal argument itself. What example can you give of this selective Wilsonianism, of these kind of paradoxes of places where you would expect the United States to you know, intervene in some sort of pro-democracy way, but it doesn't, and vice versa? Well, the trigger for the article was actually precisely such a case of selective application of Wilsonianism. In 2008, there was a mass democratic movement in Armenia, which did not trigger much interest, support or solidarity in the West. In fact, if anything, the Western attitudes were quite detached and sometimes even hostile. Whereas five years after that, there was a movement in Ukraine, uh, a similar movement in another post-Soviet republic, where the West mobilized uh, fully to support the mass movement. And in fact, one could argue that the Western support was instrumental for achieving the change of power, the the change of regime in Ukraine. And of course, in Ukraine, the policy was justified in Wilsonian terms. And again, even realists argued that this is a policy that is driven by Wilsonian idealism and it's the wrong policy. The puzzle that uh, I was interested in was, well, if Wilsonianism was instrumental in driving the US and Western European foreign policies in Ukraine, then why wasn't the same policy or the same ideational commitment not triggered in the case of Armenia? Or to repackage it in, in terms of the realist criticism, why weren't the same Western delusions about democracy and Wilsonianism not operative in the case of Armenia? And, you know, my argument was that, in fact, the difference cannot be explained in Wilsonian terms. I go to great lengths explaining why. In the article, the real difference was that the Armenian movement had no geopolitical content or commitment. It was purely a movement for restoring the constitutional order in the country, whereas the Ukrainian movement was explicitly geopolitical in its its aspirations, i.e. it was trying to pull Ukraine out of Russia's orbit and bring it closer to the West. So what is the biggest policy takeaway of your argument? One thing that I can say is that you know, awareness that sometimes these policies are indeed couched in ideational terms, but they are not driven by ideas. And it, it is always a good idea to, to try and look 
what else may be going on when a policy is justified in ideational and ideological or idealistic terms. It's always good to be skeptical about that stuff. So if there is a policy prescription, maybe it's that very general prescription. Great. Well, Arman, I have one more question for you. And that is, are you ready? Okay. To go off the page. Uh, okay. If you enjoy listening to Off the Page, you'll enjoy reading our quarterly journal, International Security, which is edited and sponsored by the Belfer Center at Harvard Kennedy School and published by the MIT Press. To learn more about the journal, please check out belfercenter.org is. Sarah Sewell is a non-resident senior fellow at the Belfer Center. She's also the executive vice president for policy at InQtel, and Sewell was previously the Undersecretary of State for Civilian Security, Democracy, and Human Rights from 2014 to 2017. Well, joining us now, we have Dr. Sarah Sewell. Thanks for joining the show today. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. The first question we thought we'd ask is, given your experience both as a scholar and as a practitioner in these issues, what was your general impression of Dr. Gregorian's argument? The article is a very useful case study in contrasting some of the key variables that shape the behavior of nations and policymakers vis-a-vis superficially similar challenges. And it also, I think, helpfully positions the question about why nations behave the way they do and what is the role of ideas versus material interests in a broader context as well. I'm of the opinion that having served in government, the interesting thing to me is always the actual decision-making that goes into the policy choices. And so it's a teaser in some sense, because the analysis points out how very different it is and makes a very plausible thesis about the reason for those differences. And, you know, I'm curious about the next level in terms of asking the actors that were part of that decision-making process, is that how they viewed those choices? Is that how they justified them in their own minds? Because I'm always interested in the sort of consoling narratives that, that policymakers employ to, to justify what might seem to be non-choices in the actual world. So Dr. Sewell, in your experience, what is the tension between material interests and also liberal ideals in how the United States engages with policy abroad? And, you know, we're lucky to have you because you were the Undersecretary of State for Civilian Security, Democracy, and Human Rights. And I know from your work, you focused a lot on civilian immunity and civilian safety and conflicts. But did you see in your work this kind of tension between these two sides of interests, whether it's material versus you know actual promotion of rights? Thanks for that. I think that if you asked my husband about my tenure at the State Department, he would tell you that that was one of the reasons why I found the job very challenging. Because the conversation about work is that if you're in what is the most senior role within the State Department charged with responsibility for essentially values, and you're working in a sea of persons that define their roles and their objectives from a very different set of perspectives. So the regional bureaus are seeing their role as being responsible for maintaining good relationships with the region. And the economics folks are seeing their role as facilitating commerce and advancing American business interests overseas. Just the the 
bureaucratic apparat in many ways mimics in the form of persons the kinds of tensions that academic work describes in the conduct of foreign policy. And so they're very real. And what's interesting to me is that the folks that work on, from a more interest-based perspective, delight in the fact that they are occasionally able to find policy positions in which there is no tension between the ideals that America purports to uphold and the policies that we're pursuing. But that, I think, is often not possible. And I think what makes the process of policymaking internally disruptive is when there is discordance between what we, the stories we tell ourselves about what the nation promotes and believes in and advances overseas and what we're actually able to do. Now, I describe that in a value-free context because I don't believe it's reasonable to expect any nation to pick, you know, X value and consistently support it at any cost across the globe. And policymaking itself is highly contextual. It depends on the individuals. It depends on the timing. It depends on what else is going on in the world. It depends on the anticipated costs of a given action, the anticipated benefits. You know, it's a, it's a complex equation. But the tension that you describe is absolutely real and inhabits the, the work and the daily experience of anyone uh, serving in in a foreign policy capacity. So one of the things that I always worry about when I talk to people who have read my article is that they will get the impression that my article is a criticism of the United States and the United States foreign policies or the foreign policies of European democracy. Undoubtedly, there is an element of that and uh, there is an element of picking on certain hypocrisies and, and certain inconsistencies between the rhetoric and the actual policies. But that is not my main target and it has never been my main target. My main target is the academic conversation of it. And, and in fact, what has triggered the article was not even the, the liberal narrative, which seems to be in my crosshairs mainly in the article. The main trigger was a lot of the realist statements, which were essentially concessions that ideals are driving U.S. foreign policy, even if realists were criticizing these the applications of these ideals. So in particular, John Mearsheimer's article in Foreign Affairs after the Ukrainian events convinced me that I have to write this article because if, if realists are conceding this point that the United States foreign policy is primarily driven or, or significantly driven by ideals at the expense of material interests, something has to be done about it. I don't know anyone who serves in government who, <laughs> who shares the purported concerns of John Mearsheimer, that values are crowding out interests in American foreign policy. So, you know, I think it does depend on the community in which you live to judge the need for repost in that context. I mean, I think more often than not, the contention that ideas drive us is something that needs to be unpacked, as you do, Armand, in your article to some degree, by asking what people mean when they claim that values are driving the United States. And a really great example of that is democracy. Another great example of that is human rights. And they're interconnected. And I live this reality all the time. The United States has always been a nation that had a rather selective view of human rights. Did that mean that its view of human rights was not valuable and that the promotion of human rights when it was advanced was not valuable? No. But does it mean that the question about the value of human rights and what we mean by human rights 
should be examined? Absolutely. And you only have to look at the role that this administration is, the effort that they've undertaken to try to further minimize the definition of human rights that the United States supports. So if under Cold War and communism, the United States was perceived to value political and civil rights rather than economic and social rights, and you know, the UN Declaration of Human Rights sort of put it all in one basket and we pulled part of it, you know, now we have Pompeo's commission claiming that really what we're concerned about is with religious freedom. And sort of collapse, telescoping it down into an ever-narrowing special interest view of what a human right constitutes. And so I think there's the broad debate that you're talking about, Amon, which is, you know, are, are realists attributing to values an unjustifiable influence on the conduct of U.S. foreign policy? But then I think within that, there's the question of what do we mean by those values? And you begin to unpack that as you look at different forms of democratization and look at the U.S. record of support for authoritarian government and the ways in which we promote democracy and don't. I feel like I've had this conversation a lot with people over the last several years, which is you know, even if the United States and European countries are essentially making foreign policy decisions, of course, based on a balancing of material interests and the interests of democracy promotion or liberal rights, it's still important at least to have one, the the actual balancing of having democratic ideals in the considerations of foreign policy, but also there's something about just having the language of human rights, having the language of democracy, even if it's not a fully part of the foreign policy, that itself holds some value and that there's something actually to be lost when we drop, you know, so to speak, of using the language. I mean, is that something that that you have thought about uh, as well or have encountered in, in your discussions with people along these issues? Since I have not been a practitioner, I, I don't know if I can answer that question properly, but I have thought about it a lot as I was writing the article or even before writing the article, whether discourses, certain discourses of foreign policy are mere rationalizations or there is something more to them, whether they have any causal relevance. Now, I don't doubt, in fact, that a lot of people do come to believe in the certain ideals that form these discourses, in the ideas that people cite to justify these policies. So they're not mere justifications sometimes, and, and people do come to, to believe them. I don't have any doubt about that. But I think the acid test for the causal relevance of these ideas is precisely when they come into conflict with something else. So when, when they are consistent with material interests, that is not a good test as to whether these ideas are really driving the policies. And I think that has been one of the most important concerns driving the logic of my paper and the logic of my argument, which is, you know, if we're going to measure and uh, gauge the influence, the importance of ideas and ideals in foreign policy making. We have to pick our cases very carefully, and we certainly cannot pick the cases where these ideals and the material interests have been pulling in the same direction. The only relevant tests are when, the, when pursuing these ideals are costly. I, I think that there's a lot of truth to that, Arman. And, you know, I used to teach a course at the Kennedy School called Values and Interests in American Foreign Policy. And one of my greatest joys was having several of my students from different epochs of my experience at the school come work for me in, in the undersecretariat. And in that class, the fundamental point was there is always, almost always a tension 
And the fact that you can't uphold the values all of the time doesn't mean that the values A, don't have meaning or B, don't make a difference. And so to me, the question is never a binary one because the actual analysis of the conduct of foreign policy is, as I said, a function of so many different factors. I mean, one of the cases that I used in the course was, you know, how did we, the United States, become a huge proponent of providing HIV AIDS aid across the world? And, you know, it came from a Republican administration. It came about because of personal interventions to the president. It was coming from the right and met the left in a place where the left would support it because it was more values-based, even though it was then, you know, sort of whittled into the abstinence program that represented a different sort of strain of understanding of the rights and morality and the ideas around HIV AIDS. You know, it's, it's complicated. And so the beauty of having the notion in your head that you are moral or that you as a nation support democracy or is that you as, a, as a, an administration support human rights is that it provides the fodder for an argument internally, externally within your domestic constituency, and internationally with your friends and your frenemies about how far you're willing to go, about how you interpret those values, about what you are prepared to do, and it creates a tension. If you didn't have that tension, you wouldn't be able to move incrementally in ways that seem unexpected. And so often, you know, there are people who argue, like Larry Wilkinson, who argue that part of the reason why, for example, the Bush administration, the first Bush administration, intervened in Somalia was because they were feeling unbearable tension about being criticized for not intervening to stop the genocide occurring in Bosnia. That speaks to the importance of that argument. It speaks to the importance of values, but it doesn't explain Somalia in and of itself. It's contextual. And, you know, to your point, Armand, about, about things being counterproductive, there's an ideological aspect of this as well. So when you think, for example, about the U.S. push to have elections in Iraq, a Shia-dominated state that had been run by a repressive regime, and you ask yourself, what's likely to be the outcome of that from a material interests point of view? You see that that is not necessarily an interest-supporting outcome to focus on democratic elections in that context. And yet we did. Is that because the administration was so focused on democracy from a values perspective? Or was that actually a blinding of the interests because of an ideological affinity to an argument? Or was the argument a self-serving or rationalizing argument for the intervention itself, which lacked, was perceived to lack legitimacy in the international context, right? So it's just, it's extremely complicated. But I think my point is that if we didn't have the purported commitments that we have to democracy or human rights or whatever it is to these values, you would lose important leverage and argumentation within the policymaking process. But it doesn't mean that you can explain everything simply through a binary values interests proposition. If I may ask a question about the elections, the decision to hold elections in, in Iraq, you're pointing at a very interesting case, in fact, and I've, I've wondered about that as well, as I've wondered about the case of the elections in Palestine, which brought Hamas to power, uh, which also was supported by the United States and other democracies. And even though it seemed 
from the get-go that the PLO was not likely to win those elections. So what exactly were they hoping to, to achieve by those elections is not clear. And it does seem, if you think about it, it does seem quite puzzling as to why they would push for those elections. Now, in Iraq, the question I have is, what do you think were the alternatives to holding elections that were almost certain to bring Shias to power? What's great about that question is that it points us to the the sort of complications in any calculation, right? So alternatives could have been the continued de facto trusteeship and occupation by the United States. They could have been a UN trusteeship. They could have been a regional power trusteeship. In other words, I think there were alternatives to democracy. But since the administration had justified the argument, the intervention itself as bringing democracy to the Middle East, they had sort of foreclosed those arguments, right? And that's an interesting point about how you can you can end up being sort of trapped in your own rhetoric about justifying one set of decisions that may lead you to try to be consistent in that rhetoric in ways that could counter your material interests. And so I think there's a predominance of an argument that the interests win, but it can have sort of these perverse effects in the context of specific decision-making sort of trees with branches and sequels. There's one issue that we could discuss, which is the concept of democracy itself in the realm of foreign policy and democracy promotion, and to what extent it's a contested term in terms of what it actually comprises of. And so the question I, I kind of have for both of you is, is, first, what are internal debates within U.S. foreign policy on what democracy promotion actually means, right? Like what specific policies comprise of this and, and where do people disagree? But I think second and most importantly is how does democracy promotion from the perspective of the West actually differ from what ideals or types of rights that people in other countries are actually fighting for or protesting for? Where's the tension between what the U.S. and the West believes is part of a democracy promotion system versus how others perceive it? It's a great question. Let me offer sort of two different vignettes from from my time at State. One of the tasks that I found myself carrying out on behalf of the U.S. government was dialogue in the Democratic Republic of Congo with the president who was refusing to step down from office. And the democracy promotion was procedural at one level in the sense that I was trying to help convince the president, um, Kabila, that there would be consequences if he didn't allow for elections. But we were simultaneously very concerned about stability and violence and human rights abuse being instigated by the government, if not carried out by the government. And so in trying to thread that needle and in conversations with opposition groups, who were hopelessly fractured and could not agree on sort of a common program. The question becomes, because the pro-democracy groups are both criticizing the violence by the government and criticizing the lack of elections, and the incumbent argument is we're going to have more instability if we have elections, this issue internally of their own debate about what are the values that a democracy should be upholding and what are the the costs and um, risks attendant on insisting on a movement to promote democracy, very real and very superficial 
and in great tension. Another example of how the questions about what democracy means and what you're willing to sort of countenance by way of the broader package of rights and risks around it would have been in Guatemala, where you know, the United States had worked under the Obama administration for a long period of time to try to bring more accountability and transparency to the exercise of democratic governance by a very corrupt regime in Guatemala. And there, there were elections that were held with a candidate that purported to be anti-corruption and was unknown to the electorate as a politician, but who was supported by elements that were known to be anti-democratic and part of the corruption mess that the international community was seeking to clean up. And so the U.S. role in trying to adjudicate between unearthing the sort of the rock underneath the superficial democratic system while supporting the democratic system just becomes very complicated. And so I think all I'm trying to say in answer to the question is that there are definitional questions about democracy. And and I'd love to talk a little bit about how we're dealing with democracy in the United States, where increasingly people are asking, you know, is an electoral college democratic? And is the Senate filibuster democratic? And what does voter suppression mean in the context of democracy? And what does it mean when the president is telling people to vote twice? You know, all that stuff about our domestic situation. But internationally, just the question, how do you promote a democratic process, even when there are tensions within promoting the democratic process that run afoul of other values, goals that you think are important? So, I think one of the main problems with how the United States defines democracy, I mean, it's not not a new phenomenon, in fact. It's not a new problem. This has been a problem for the United States, at least since the the early days of the Cold War, when the United States was consciously trying to come up with an ideological alternative and an ideological, an alternative that could rival the attraction of the Soviet model and the attraction of its economically liberating ideology, at least attractive to a lot of people in the in the third world or in the developing world and in the parts of the world that were colonized by Western empires. So from the very beginning, there was this sort of tension and understanding that the United States has to have an alternative concept of democracy, which focused mostly on civil rights, limited government, and property rights. But over time, this was presented as the only universal definition of democracy, while any other you know, liberating ideology, left-wing conceptions of democracy were, were dismissed as socialist or communist. So the United States had always been suspicious of struggles, uh, democratic struggles, anti-authoritarian struggles in the third world that relied mostly on ideologies focusing on economic liberation. So I I think there is a long history and genealogy of this problem. And now also, it's often my impression that the United States tends to emphasize civil rights, uh, certain rights connected to identity politics in the United States, whereas in many parts of the world where the work of democracy promotion is being done, a lot of people are interested in economic liberation, a lot of people are interested in struggles against corrupt elites and authoritarian governments. And a lot of these arguments about, you know, a lot of this content of what 
American CS democracy does not resonate quite well uh, with those populations. And I, I am wondering what Dr. Sewell uh, thinks about uh, this comment of mine and whether she has encountered anything like that in her work. The notion that the U.S. has focused on a different set of rights, I think, is is 100% correct. I do think that the U.S. owned the concept of democracy in the context of the Cold War, and, and, I, and I don't want to spend a lot of time on that. But the earlier manifestations of, of blatant U.S. violations or contradictions in our democracy promotion, such as you know the coup in Guatemala, were clearly consistent with the analysis that Amman has just provided, where it was not the process of democracy that we were supporting. It was the outcomes of someone who was democratically elected. And there, I think there was, you know, fear of nationalization of U.S. industry, et cetera. But that's not always the case. And it's very interesting to remember that the U.S. view about Algeria's elections and the refusal to countenance an ideological outcome there that was not about economic ideology. It was very much about sort of religious ideology and what that would mean for U.S. security interests. You know, there's a case where we simply opposed who would win. And it stands in stark contrast to, you know, the conversation that we had about thinking through what the majority would look like in Iraq, for example. So I think one of the prime critiques that the U.S. conduct of foreign policy is open to is, are we supporters of procedural democracy? And if so, what does that mean? And how does our own process stack up against what we think of as democratic process externally? And how much of it is simply, you know, the Fareed Zakaria point about a liberal democracy? And we, what we don't want to have happen is have the people that we think we don't like elected to power. And whether that's in an Eastern European context, like what's happening in Poland or Hungary, or whether that's in the context of an Algeria, we are internally inconsistent on that point, quite apart from what we think of as being the modicum of process fairness that we would consider to constitute the democratic floor. And so I think there are many different ways to critique the U.S. conduct of foreign policy vis-a-vis democracy. I think there, there's a, a multitude of ways to attack it. And I, but I think from the perspective of citizens, the question is, would we rather have that discourse? Would we rather have that claim and have it as a stick within which to force an argument down into these deeper levels? Or would we rather not have the pretense at all, be free of the hypocrisy, but not have the space to make the normative arguments about the role of ideas mattering in U.S. foreign policy? So that's a fantastic point. And I think it also allows us to touch briefly on what may be kind of one of the bigger, more public movements happening right now, um, reminded of, of by your point of this idea of democratic process, which is the current protest and opposition movement within Belarus. I'm curious, you know, to both of you, what has been your reaction or your view so far on how the West has engaged with this movement? Is it surprising that there's been as much attention or as little attention as there has been? How does this kind of tie into to our discussion here about these tensions of what democracy promotion actually means uh, for the United States and the West? I am hesitant to make very confident claims about what's happening in Belarus. 
and how the Western governments and Western organizations reacted to it, because I don't know enough about this case. I haven't studied it closely enough. But just uh, the impression I got from reading The Economist and The New York Times and, and just following basically the news, it seems like my argument has passed this test. Now, what happened in Belarus was uh, a revolt, essentially, against falsified elections. And this was a movement, a mass movement that, just like the, the mass movement in Armenia in 2008, had no geopolitical content whatsoever. It was not anti-Russian. It was not you know, explicitly pro-Western or pro-anything. It was about removing Lukashenko from power. And it's undeniable that for the first several days, this movement essentially was treated with indifference. There wasn't much interest. And in fact, articles appeared later. I think there was one in The Economist pointing this out, that the Western governments and the Western institutions did not pay sufficient attention to what was happening in Belarus. Now, the tide seems to be changing because Lukashenko has made a strategic decision of seeking Moscow's help for crushing this movement. Now, one one other point I was going to make, not only there was no geopolitical content to the movement in, in Belarus, it is also true that however obnoxious Lukashenko is, he had been quite a difficult partner, let's put it that way, for Moscow. And, you know, at, at times he had created tremendous amounts of tension with Russia and, and with the Kremlin. So all those things may have contributed to the relative indifference to what was happening in, in Belarus initially. And as I said, now that Lukashenko seems to have uh, decided that he's going to seek Moscow's help in crushing this movement, there is more active criticism, more threats of sanctions, etc., etc. So this may eventually, uh, well, I don't know if it will become a case where geopolitical interests again trump ideals. I don't want to frame it that way, but certainly since there was no geopolitical interest in the beginning, there was relative indifference to what was happening in Belarus, especially when you compare it to the reaction that followed the Ukrainian events in 2013. No, I don't think we can underestimate the other sort of odd intervening factors here that I wish I knew more about. But I think the broad point, which is that where U.S. interests are aligned with calls for democracy, the U.S. is more likely to consider supporting the calls for democracy. I think that's the point of the article. I think it's pretty clear. And I think the question then is sort of what does that mean? Where is the margin for sort of decision and action? I think if the Trump administration has been much more ambivalent about its geopolitical interests vis-a-vis Russia than I would argue any preceding administration since the end of World War II. And so, you know, I do think the U.S. has interests here now that it's been been joined with Russia, essentially appearing to threaten another invasion if necessary. I mean, it's that's significant. And so the real question is, well, what are the tools that you have to do anything about it? And what do you know about the movement? What would the alternative be? All that kind of analysis that needs to be going on behind the scenes. But I think what has surprised me is that if you imagine Ronald Reagan in this situation, he would have wanted to exploit it geopolitically from the get-go. And so I do think it's interesting that we have an administration that is so 
conflicted, it would appear, about its relationship to Russia at this moment. And I think it's probably bad luck for the protesters that that there is this circumspection within this particular U.S. administration, because normally it would have been a sort of no-brainer, I think. Well, Dr. Sewell, we like to end every podcast by asking our special guest what advice they'd have for individuals who are just starting their academic or their policy careers based on your years of experience in both realms? Well, I was <laughs> I was fortunate enough to be a student of Joe Nye's. When I was an undergraduate, I took classes at the Kennedy School. And at the time, and I think, you know, for a long time, Professor Nye was known especially, apart from soft power, he was known especially for being a proponent of thinking about the ethical aspects of foreign policy. And he was also known as a proponent of thinking about the relevance of academic work to the policy world. And I think I took both of those, all three of those really teachings to heart as I moved forward in my career. And so what I personally am most interested in as somebody who's moved between these worlds is where are they connected? Where are the important questions in terms of the shaping of the world? Where can academic inquiry inform them and help us navigate them better? And it took me a long time to find a set of questions that I thought, you know, sort of merited a plunge into a PhD to answer them and ended up sort of being fundamentally about sort of the role of constructivist ideas vis-a-vis material interests. And my PhD was basically about, well, when they when they match, you're you're more likely to see ideas stick, which I think is is exactly the point of Amanat's article. But in terms of advice, I think the question is what moves you? You know, where can you find a way to bring academic inquiry to be relevant to the world? Similarly, if you're practicing foreign policy, what can you do that helps teach the sort of the next generation what the right questions are, how to move the needle. So my belief is that people have to sample worlds and sample problems and sort of find a puzzle that they want to try to answer and then find the medium or the discipline or the career route that will help you answer that puzzle. Because I think the biggest risk that we have, either as academics or as practitioners, is that it sort of becomes about us and our career as opposed to our impact. And helping really focus on what problem you want to tackle is a great antidote to either of those temptations that can afflict those worlds. Fantastic. That's great advice. And I, I want to take this moment to thank both you, Dr. Sewell, and Dr. Gregorian for engaging in such a fantastic conversation today. Thank you both joining the show. Off the Page is a production of International Security, a quarterly journal edited and sponsored by the Belfer Center at Harvard Kennedy School and published by the MIT Press. Our program is produced and edited by Morgan Kaplan, the executive editor of International Security. The associate producer and technical director is Ben Craig. Digital communications by me, Julie Belise. Production support by Carly Dimitri. Thanks to our intern, Kendrick Foster, for additional assistance. And special thanks to Hilan Kaplan for composing our theme music. Upcoming episodes and additional material for Off the Page can be found online at belfercenter.org slash off the page. All articles from the journal can be read at mitpressjournals.org slash is.